Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm your host. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and the CBC for their ongoing support. Today, we're lucky enough to be presenting a conversation between two amazing talents, both living in Winnipeg, both GG winners who have excelled in a wide variety of genres and who have both produced some mind-blowing graphic novels of late that are part of a much-needed trend in reconnecting readers, and especially young readers, with the truth about this country's relationship with Indigenous peoples and nations, past and present. Here's the conversation between David A. Robertson and Katerina Vermette on Road Allowance Era, which is book four in the Echo series of graphic novels. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Pretty good. How are you? <laughs> good. We we just literally just got on the call with each other. We haven't been talking for half an hour already. Yes, it's brand new. It's like, hey, how you doing? Yeah. Hey, nice it's been so long. Um, it's been so long. I know. So it actually has <laughs> been a, a little bit, a little bit. Um, bit. I think the last time I saw you was like uh, when I went over and Ruben gave me an action figure. That's right. You gave me a book. He gave you an action figure yes. for a book. Good trade. And he got to show yes, and he got to show you his office, which he loves showing people. Well, that was way he? before. Yeah, he, it's full of transformers. Yeah. Um, that was before I think even the last lockdown, like the lockdown before this lockdown. <laughs> yeah, it was like early COVID, pre-lockdown. Yeah. Yeah, because it was in like I remember it was so hot. I remember it was so hot. Oh wow. Yeah. 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 And I yeah, ran my car for so long. Um, and I was like, cause I was, I, and I didn't have air conditioning and I was came in and I did, stayed way longer than I thought I was going to do be of course. And then when I went back to my car, we totally it was like, a, it was like an oven. It was, it was <laughs> so funny. Oh, you gotta love Winnipeg for that. Hey, it's like, you do. you're either boiling or you're freezing. And yeah. I, yeah. Mm, it's like two, it. it's like two extremes. It's very rarely like in the middle. It's yeah. never perfect weather in Winnipeg. It's never, it not. It, even when it's cool in the summer, it's windy. I don't uh, know yeah. why it has to be so windy all the You're time. Right. Yes. I, my perfect, my sweet spot is like 15 to 20 and like partly cloudy with no wind. That's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. I like a little boring. bit of rain. Okay. Talking about weather is okay. super. Let's talk wet. about books. Okay. Okay, but talking about weather is serious business. That's why it's important. They can cut all this shit out. This is, this, no, they shouldn't because this is this is this is the preamble like banter, which is like yes. people are going to like this. Yes. Well, weather is serious business in Winnipeg, and Winnipegers have to talk about the weather. It's yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's a prerequisite. The beginning of any conversation, you talk yeah. about the weather. So listen, yeah. we've got that. We got the weather out of the way. Good. Moving on. Okay, so my I'm Dave <laughs> Robertson, and I am with Katharina Vermette. That's who is, me. Yeah, who is like an uh, an icon, and also <laughs> lucky enough to be my buddy. 
And it's true. Yeah. And so it's she true, is, I don't even know your bio. I don't I have it in front of me, but I know it. <laughs> I'll just tell people okay. that you are a, a Gigi Award winner and uh, Amazon First Novel Award winner, and you've won a crap load of awards, just to sum it up, okay, in case you didn't know. Yes. Okay. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Thank you. You didn't know that. No, and, and, so, and so two poetry books, um, North End Love Songs and River Woman. Are you impressed okay. that I know all this right now? Are you doing this all off the cuff too? No, you're yes. you're like reading screen. I am not you're reading at all. Okay. No, nope, I am not. Nope, I'm not okay. at all. No. Okay, I'm, I can. I'm, my mind. I can is like do the same back. <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> I can. I can. Okay, go ahead. Dave, David Robertson is also a GG uh, award winner an and OG. numerous other an OG, OGGG. <laughs> Do you yeah. know, we just figured it out, a friend of mine and I just figured out that now Indigenous folks have won in each of the GG categories. That's pretty cool. Um, That's pretty cool. That is. In, until, um, like, I remember when I won, it was only Ian and um, Kevin Loring both won for playwriting. Um, uh, yeah, so we were going to form a club, a gang, the GGG. By the way, remember I inducted you into the GGG. Wait, 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 wait. How many Indigenous writers have won the GG? That's a good question. Ian Ross, Kevin Loring, both won for plays. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then you won for young people, young, young babies mm -hmm. um, with young Julie. Babies. And then yep. Cherie Jamiline won the same year as you. Um, yep. Tom King won for fiction. He won for On the Back of the Turtle, I believe. Yes. Yes. Yep. So now we've won in all of the English categories. Um, so Look now we got to work on the French categories. Um, it's our it's our mission now. Because I, I still I feel like it's I still feel like it's like that's not a lot of not a lot of winners in Indigenous. Not to complain, but like you know, <laughs> we have a lot of talented Indigenous writers in this country who are who what who you are one of. And that's my segue. As as are you. No, I've I've got to finish your bio. I'm like I, okay. well, I and I I do agree that it's kind of ridiculous that in tw the 2020s you have a first of any group winning anything. You know, I think it's everything is long past overdue. But anyway, Dave Robertson um, has been working his tail off for so many years. I'm pretty sure you publish what ten books a year on average. Um, <laughs> most recently, the Barren Grounds. Uh, which is doing amazingly well. It's, uh, I just saw it on the bestsellers list. Yes, yes. Oh, you know, okay, um, not, to, not to brag. It's been there for like like half a year straight. <laughs> not to brag. <laughs> not to brag. I'm, always, to like brag. One, I'm always like one rung below Cherie, like every week. It's like- You guys Cherie, are just sitting there duking it out. Oh yeah. Just yeah. sitting there yeah. duking it out with Robert Munch. <laughs> Robert Munch, um, I'm, I'm ahead of usually, thank God, because that good. book is creepy. It Love is you forever. so creepy. It yeah. is I. It is the creepiest book um, ever. It's like, no, no. And I, yeah. I told my kids, like, I'm never going to break into your house to hug you. Yes. You know, I might no. knock on the door if I need to. Anyway. But listen, Robert, fine. listen, Robert. Robert, if you're listening to this, I love most <laughs> of your books, but that book is creepy. Okay. I Robert, like I have many favorite Robert Munch books. That's just not one of them. Right. There's a beautiful yeah. one about a rainbow dress 
uh, this girl with the rainbow dress. I remember. Oh, this, he's, he's got a lot of amazing books. So let's just, you know, yeah. he won't mind. Okay. He won't mind. Keep he's on going. good. He's got it Keep covered. On going. Patting my ego. Let's go. <laughs> okay. Um, you wrote the Reckoner series, which is not this. Um, what I really, I love the Reckoner series because it has a, um, a trilogy of novels. And now we've, that's kind of acts as an origin story. And now we've segued into comic books where, where Cole is um, just going to be kicking ass. And Cole, by the way, is also drawn by Scott Henderson, who I work with on with the yeah. Echo series. And Cole is the coolest superhero. He has an octopus bag, which I'm so jealous of. You know, Scott showed okay. me the octopus bag and I made him put an octopus bag actually in Echo 4. Um, that's because I was trying to be you. Aw, um, sweet. Yeah. That's so sweet. Well, I'm, I'm also Métis, so the octopus bag is technically ours. Well, yeah, I could see that. Okay, yeah. I, I appropriated it for Cole's backpack. <laughs> <laughs> the Cree can, I'm sure the Cree had, you know, octopus bags also. That's fine. Oh, traditionally, we were like, we were like all full um, of octopus that's bags. That's an ugly sound. <laughs> <laughs> we had like octopus. Um, we're basically, we're basically. bags. <laughs> Octopi. Yes. No, we didn't. Octopi. <laughs> Octopi. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Okay, okay. I, You're, I'm I say that. So I you, believe the octopus yeah. bag originally. You know. What? Okay. You I'm know the best the bio. and so are you. you That's know the it. Bio. We, we know I don't know who okay. originated the octopus. I could keep going. I could keep no, going. Okay. Well, we, Listen, we can stop. Katharina. Katharina, this is about you. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. So listen, you you did you did your, your poetry books and you did the break. The break, which is like, you know, instant classic can lit novel um if anybody hasn't read it they should go out also and read it um along with your poetry and then you segued into graphic novels which seems like could be a little jarring to go from like you know novels to you know poetry to novels to poetry graphic novels uh, was that like a difficult transition to go into graphic novels? Um, not really. I also did a couple film in between there, film projects in between there. So it felt really organic from film because right. um, I um, because I also knew, did not know what I was doing when I did film or graphic novels. So I, I was just learning and I love the collaboration, you know, and you know this, so many times we're writing books and we're very isolated and stuff. But when you're writing mm -hmm. a graphic novel, there's none of that. When you're doing a film, there's none of that. Um, I worked really closely with the editors and then later with Scott Henderson, the illustrator, um, and really relied on their expertise to kind of guide me through the, the graphic novels. Um, yeah. Wait, was I, I was really remiss to say, Katharina, that you also have done a bunch of picture books, which I think also would help a little yeah. bit in yeah. the graphic novel yeah. realm. Picture words, <laughs> like, oh, pictures yeah, and words. It. Yeah, pictures, girl in the, words, the girl and the yeah. wolf, and the um, seven sacred teaching series. Yeah, 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 and um, yeah. I mean, I feel like I really like graphic novels and picture books because. My, my job is so easy because I'm just doing the writing part and, and you can relate to this because it's really as much as 
we're a part of the illustration process. We're really just directing and kind of maybe putting our two cents in. Um, and Scott just knows how to do everything. So really I felt like I was just um, letting him go where he needed to go with the story and just kind of putting my two cents in here and there. Um, so it really just kind of came to life after me, which is really great because it's kind of like you just write this story and then someone goes and draws it for you. It's kind of like a fantasy come true. Uh, for the for the graph novel writing, um, was there something about the story that, like, what was your decision to tell the story in graphic novel form? You know, like, because you're an OG Red River Métis. OG, yes. Um, yes. Um, very Métis. And I, okay, the story about how Echo came about was really just me putting my foot in my mouth. Because I was over at the Portage of Maine offices and talking with Catherine and Annalie Greenberg and Catherine Jabasi, the publisher. And I think we were talking about this place, or it must have been the seven teaching stories, because um, I think this place was just an idea at that time. Um, but I was giving them heck because at that time they had all of your stuff. And I think Jen Storm was, Jen Storm was the only female graphic novelist they had at the time so I said you got to get more girls in here you got to get more women graphic novel artists or writers because they seem really cool and I'm in awe of the coolness of graphic novel women writers um, and then I think I said something about yeah you should do this whole thing on Métis history because um, you don't have any Métis history so really I was just giving them heck um, for, for not doing stuff and then they turned around and were like well you're Métis and you're a woman and you can you know, do this. And, and I said, ah, oh, no, I can't do this. I got to stay in my lane, wherever that was at the time. Um, but this is like <laughs> pandemic, real life stuff. Keep going, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Just yell it. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, I, I didn't want to do it. I just, dis I dismissed it entirely because I didn't think I could do it. Um, but really it was this character echo that was kind of echoing around. And um, she was a really quiet kid. She was a kid kind of um, at that time. I didn't really, she was just very solitary. She starts the series very solitary, but you're isolated and alone and quiet and just like, you know, hoodie up and headphones in. Um, and I thought it would be really great to show her in graphic novel form because in graphic because when graphic novels the the pictures do so much of the work they do all of the heavy lifting and story and really it was just I just pictured her in her isolated loneliness with like these long shots out and I thought it would be so amazing to show her that way rather than showing her in, in prose or poetry or however else I could have put her um so then she was just kind of born you know, and I, I made her a time traveler because she's purely just living out my fantasies of traveling back in time to like key moments in Métis history and just hanging out with people. Um, the original like little tagline I had for her when I pitched the idea back to them, um, or yeah, um, was Echo's a girl with magical powers. She can read things and then they come alive, um, mm -hmm. which of course is all of us, right? So yeah. Um, so then she was just this time traveling little geeky girl <laughs> who gets to go back and, and hang out on the bison hunt. And then she gets to hang out at the resistances and, and the latest one, which is um, it goes all the way up to the road allowance era. Cause allowance. I kind of wanted to go really slowly through Métis history um, through her, her incarnations. 
Yeah, so it was almost like a convergence of this character in your head and then like, you know, being like put on the spot to do graphic novels and then the realization that graphic novels like are, are a cool thing to do and you're going to do it and all that kind of came together and then a girl called Echo was born. Yes, and it was mostly my niece who who loved graphic novels and thought I would be so cool to write a graphic novel. So that's really what pushed me over the edge. You know, it's all about street cred with me. Yeah. You know, with the little kids. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that though, and you mentioned something earlier, do you think that there actually are lanes? Because you said staying in your lane. Do you think that there really are lanes though? I don't think so. I if there are, I'm not in them. I'm kind of just wandering around. I no, I don't think there are anymore. I don't know many people who just do one thing. Yeah. particularly artists, particularly writers, particularly Indigenous artists and Indigenous writers. We tend to kind of be multimedia and multimediums. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I don't believe in lanes. I remember when I started, I really felt like I had to kind of stay somewhere. You know, I had to do poetry. or I, I did poetry and picture books with my first like two published projects. And I felt like I had to kind of stick with those and, and stay there. Um, but yeah, that did not prove to be my forte <laughs> what which one didn't you, you which one do you did did you not think was your forte they were pretty know, good. St staying in my lane was not my oh, forte yeah. i kind of just your lane was not yeah. your forte. Yeah, it yeah. is not my forte no well, doing what not, i yeah I doing what i'm boring. supposed to do is not what no. what i do <laughs> very well did you think that like um doing all these sort of different for, different forms of literature and genres do you do you feel like that that kind of cross-pollination has helped you to like just build skills as a writer generally? Like, do you think that the skills in one lead lends to another and vice versa? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and I'm trying to remember this quote. I quote her all the time and I think I probably mash up her words, but Columpa Bob, who's a playwright, I remember her once saying that poets were like filmmakers because it's all about the image and fiction writers are like playwrights because it's all about the character. Um, and I think that's what she said, and I hope it was. And But I really feel that because when I've done film and when I did graphic novels also, it felt like poetry to me. I was really writing it in the first incarnation. It was in poetry. It felt like I was just seeing scenes and like describing things. Um, fiction writing is all for me about character. And and I, I just kind of like love to dive into people's brains. Um, so fiction kind of feeds this entirely different animal um for me um than poetry or film or or graphic novels or whatever um but yeah i feel like everything kind of has its own own beat its own rhythm or or whatever and i think different stories lend themselves better to different mediums um yeah you, so i really like that, moving around do you find that um you you like have gravitated more towards one more than another or do you just feel like you just like you, you just like to dabble in all of them right now I kind of dabble in all of them I like to have a lot of things on the go like project wise because I kind of um as much as I'm a discipline writer I'm a I'm super like in, we're in inspiration driven writer writer so I kind of go where I want to um that's generally my mo I just do whatever I want um mm -hmm. So if one day I want to work on my novel, I'm working on my novel. If one day I want to work on a film project, I work on a film project. Um, it's kind of like where, um, you know, and it get I get I hit deadlines sometimes. So 
So it's not completely, it's not completely wishy-washy. Um, but I do like to kind of move around a little bit because like right now I'm writing novels. So I feel super novel. I haven't written poetry in months. So I feel very far away from poetry, but poetry is never very far away from me. It's kind of like my home. But do you feel like also there's like a lot of poetry in prose? And I think there's a lot oh. of poetry in like picture books and there's a lot of poetry in just in, in the like economy of words and the like rhythm and flow of, of, of words. And um, so I think that even though you might feel like you haven't written poetry, you probably actually are writing poetically, which. Yeah, that's true. That's a very good point. Cause yeah, my yes, made a good novels point. made a good point. Yes. 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 Cause my novels are this. all poetry. You're so good at this. You're Oprahing the shit out of this. Nailed it. <laughs> it's true I well and I kind of think poetry isn't everything um yep. because I think in one form or another it tends to be but at least for me but. let me let me ask you a bit about practice in graphic novel writing and then we'll talk about the series itself I'm because I'm curious because I don't we obviously we both know a lot of graphic novelists and everybody has a different approach to like script development and story development um what 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 is what is your like what's your process and what is like the development process look like um, between you and Scott um, for like, for this series? Um, well, for me, my personal journey for each book started with a lot of research, like, and that, that's why each of the books are spread out one every year. Cause I wanted to make sure to spend lots and lots of time in research and historical research. And I wanted to, um, make sure I was hitting the right points because there's so much history is so overwhelming to me and it's so daunting and it's so daunting to um, to write your community's history and your your people your family's history because Métis are really opinionated people so I mean I would write something and you know my uncle would have an opinion or my dad would have an opinion if I chose to share it with them which I didn't often but they always had an opinion when I did um, so I wanted to be really careful and kind of hit the right thing. So I did a lot of research and then it started as like poetry for me. I kind of, I kind of wrote it kind of like this big long poem. It was a really bad poem, but the images were, were there. Um, and then I put it into like a script formula and then I would hand it over to the editor, um, which was Annalie for the first three, Annalie Greenberg, and then um, Gary Thomas Morse for the last one. Um, and Annalie would eventually send the script back to me and tell me all the things I did wrong because I don't understand script and formula and I forget the rules. Um, and, and she tries to lay it out. She helped me lay it out in pages because that was also something that my brain doesn't work that way. Um, but then it starts to take form, right? You know, then every page kind of has a certain look. Um, and then we, we kind of finalize the script first. And then we handed it over to Scott and then Scott would start working on the pencils um, and kind of the layouts and we would draw little characters. And that's when, I mean, so much of the layout and the um, how the pages looked and how everything flew flowed like that. Um, I really let Scott lead through all of that because he's written so many or he's drawn so many graphic novels. So he really had the expertise there. And I, I was really learning from him for a long time. Um, and then, my, so my contribution became, you know, kind of adjusting here and there. We would kind of do a lot of like on the fly research, trying to make sure we're getting all these historical things where they're supposed to be. 
um, as you know, from writing historical things, there's, you know, you never have everything right and you never have everything like where it should be. It just kind of seems to move around somehow. Um, yeah. And then it just kind of feels like you're just, you have this story that someone is bringing to life, you know, and the pencils become inks and then the inks get colored. And then suddenly there's like, we have lots of landscapes in echo. So these landscapes just like kind of like there's just so amazing to get these emails every day um, with these different scenes that I just imagined, like really just, you know, literally breathing into life. Um, so it was a really fun process. actually. Yeah, I, I actually, yeah, I, I love that. And I love that there's so many different ways to approach the, like the art of graphic novel writing. It's, uh, it's, you know, speaking from one person to another, to another, you know, like they might do it that way. They might do it like, uh, you know, uh, I think Jen or Richard does like just like page descriptions. And then Scott just pulls that out and makes it into panels, you know, breaks it, breaks it down. I have like very detailed scripts that look like very anal retentive, like movie scripts. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think that's so interesting. That. So the story though, um, and I, I, can I, I think there's a few, there's a lot more going on than just, than just history. So I, I could ask you like a boring question, like how do you choose what history to leave in and leave out? Which I think is actually kind of maybe not so boring a question, but it's, it's kind of interesting because there's just so much, there's so much history from that area era. Um, mm -hmm. I guess I will ask you like how do you how do you choose like what you're going to leave out and put in because there's so much there's so much depth there to the Métis history, especially around that time. Was that difficult yeah. for you? It was really, really difficult. Um, and it's not, it's an excellent question. And it's a completely historical nerd question. Because <laughs> um, I, yeah, I was just, and, and that's why I, I, I took a lot of time with each era. And I liked that, but it was also kind of um, problematic in the way that I just kept overthinking everything and underthinking and rethinking and over um, because you really have to make a book becomes just a series of scenes right you know you're not taking you can't talk about like absolutely everything you can jam some of the facts that you missed out in the timeline at the back of the book but for the most part you have to tell a story and you have to flow with the story um, and you also have the limited perspective of this little time traveling young person um, and it's what she sees and what she's able to see. So she had to actually be in those spaces when these things were happening. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was easy to pick um, the battles, you know, the battles like Seven Oaks and and the uh, um, the gunfights during the Red River Resistance and the Battle of Batoche and, and Fish Creek at, at, in the Northwest Resistance. Those were easy um, because they're, of course, very important things that were happening but then you also have to explain all of this lead up to where you get there and you and you have to do that in like this tiny little space of time um i was actually really surprised at how much you can tell in graphic novels but you're limited to what you can see and what people are talking about um so i really leaned into source material materials whenever possible like um, and like for the Northwest Resistance, I had this great book called um, Gabrielle Dumont Speaks, which is actually Gabrielle Dumont's own words talking about what happened during the Northwest Resistance. It was in, like, it was incredibly easy because that's like just a, a literal like eye of the storm view of everything that was happening. So um, that was really great. It was a little harder when we were in the early 1800s with the Pemmican Wars, because then you really just had 
um, the Hudson's Bay accounts of everything, which was not the Métis accounts by any means. So we had to, um, there's a lot of blanks to fill in. Um, so it was a little different a process, but yeah, you're kind of like, in a way, just kind of putting as much, like you're putting pages and pages of history into like a couple panels, you know, yeah, and trying to do it as quickly as possible. Is it hard to like avoid info dumps? Like, you know, cause I think that, <laughs> cause I saw like a couple strate strategically placed info dumps, but it was, it was just enough. And I think it was really framed nicely by action and by, <laughs> by plot, like plot movement. Yeah. Um, because you have to a little bit because it's a historical graphic novel, um, but you can't have it like all like, you know, like so narrative heavy that you you lose the power of the 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 images and how they tell stories. Mm -hmm. um, so that's like a tricky balance, I, I would think. It was. It I it was. I really tried to stick with all the. <laughs> any kind of fast moving stuff. Anytime there was like, they were on a horse and like racing around, like, you know, I was following the kids doing that, um, the characters. Um, I conveniently though, Echo is also in school learning about her Métis history. So whenever we needed to learn some kind of key information, we had her teacher, Mr. B, have a whiteboard behind him. And then we just had like all the things kind of listed that we needed to know. So it was, it was very, I limited myself to probably two, maybe three of those per book um because really it's it's an easy out you know like let's just list all the historical facts um it was only when we couldn't tell it another way yeah you know? and also really nice how you have sprinkled in like direct <laughs> direct quotes from yeah. you know Rial and Dumont and I thought that was a really nice touch yeah. and sometimes I think there's there's a there's a there's a requirement in historical fiction just to have to at times make up the dialogue and have it at least be true to um, the time and the situation. But when you, when you can to be able to like use direct quotes from the source is a really nice thing to be able to do. Yeah, it was very nice. Like the first two books, um, we didn't have any of those kind of eyewitness accounts necessarily. We had a bit more with the Red River Resistance than with the Pemmican Wars. Um, but by the time we got to the Northwest Resistance and um, and the trial of Louis Riel, like we there, there's tons of eyewitness accounts and there's tons mm -hmm. of, you know, on the historical record accounts of, of what these people said. And I think that that is way more important than what anyone else said. And yeah. whenever possible, we I use those um, with pride because I think that the other story we know um and the story there's a story that's so often told and that's not necessarily the true story so i wanted to use the true story whenever possible yeah i love that and i loved like it's so powerful to be able to read like Riel's words in court um mm. i mean that that's um really important to be able to because that's like i mean that's history that you're renewing in a way to um like a younger generation because that's who's going to be reading these graphic novels um, and like, he was such a good orator. Um, mm. and I think I, I felt the same way when I was writing, um, the big bear graphic novel. And there's some, there's some like actually like, um, um, uh, there's some crossover between like uh, the big bear graphic novel I did, uh, the last two ones that you did road allowance and yep. the, 
and and also in Dumont too, because I wrote yeah. a Dumont graphic novel. And I noticed some of like the 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 scenes kind of overlapping of like it almost like they're they complement each other really well. And I loved using big big bear quotes because Big Bear was such like a a like a badass. Uh, and yeah. also like a cr incredible orator. Um, I loved using direct right. quotes for him when I could. So I appreciate that you were able to do that too. Um, Cause Rial was like an incredible speaker. He was an incredible speaker. He was an incredible writer. Um, yeah. yeah. And his, his speech at his trial was I think an hour long. Um, it was in English, which was not his first language. I think it was like his fourth or fifth language. Um, but he just spoke so poignantly. It's actually very moving to, mm -hmm. to hear. It's very much, this happened in 1885, you know, there's very much, and he was an incredibly Catholic person. Um, but there's so much power in what he said. There's so yeah. much power in, and how he described the Métis people and the Métis nation that has risen up in the last, in that last century at his time. And his whole point of everything, of everything he ever did was to find, was to find a secure Métis homeland for the Métis people who were completely disenfranchised and lost all their, all their land from like, and then that Canada took from them and he, um, and they killed him for it. Yeah. Um, so, and they killed him for it right after he made this hour long impassioned speech. Um, basically, you know, saying like his lawyers were trying to, um, get him to plead insanity and their their whole case was on you know he's he's totally insane he's totally insane and then basically he stood up and said no i'm not i'm an intellectually you know i'm an intellectual mm. person this is the reason why this is my argument for me and the metis nation um and they killed him for it and it's actually very very tragic um yeah. and i think yeah. it's important it's important <laughs> because the there's there's like a historical misconception that he was crazy around the time like of his death. And I think it, it's important to like in this story to show him as actually being someone who is just like devout in his beliefs and also um, incredibly loyal and impassioned supporter and leader for his people. Um, and it, it doesn't make him crazy, you know? And I think that like, I, I you hear often crazy. that, you know, you hear often that he was, um, like he was nuts around the time that he, that he died. And I don't really think that's true at all. I mean, do, like, do you? No, I don't. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that if we look at, um, I mean, he was very much a product of his time. He was very much a Catholic person um, and believed in those tenets, which I don't believe in. So they, they ring kind of funny to me, um, but that's, that's okay. I shouldn't say funny. Um, but I, there, we have different belief systems. But I also, I've really been looking at Lurie in the frame of how we are starting to understand mental health these days. And mm -hmm. if you look at that, I think he was someone who was under an enormous amount of stress. He was literally hunted like a dog at 1880, from like 1870 till 1885. Um, he, I think, did probably go through periods of intense stress. Um, I think maybe he did have a mental breakdown at one point when he did um, go into a mental asylum in Quebec. The other argument was that he only pretended to go crazy because at that point he was exiled. And the only way he could get into Canada was to sneak in and stay in this asylum um, with friends who, who let him stay there. 
Um, there's so many stories about, I, yeah, I'm a total real nerd. I mean, there's so many stories about him. I think it's, what's interesting is that Métis people, his family and the people that knew him all denounced very passionately that he was not crazy and very much supported him in everything he did. Um, And that's the people that knew him. And then the people Mm. that wanted to kill him and who were successful in killing him, they were the ones who kept saying he was crazy. Actually, the this is a rabbit hole. Actually, the first person that said that Louis Riel was crazy was Charles Schultz, who ran the Northwester newspaper um, during the Red River resistance. And he was an enemy of um, the Métis resistance and wanted the Métis resistance shut down. So he started the rumor that Riel was crazy back mm-hmm. in 1869. So that and steamrolled from there. Um, yeah, which just shows that there's so much more history to tell. So much you know, more. So much more. Is there going to be more in this series or are you done at four, do you think? Uh, I'm done this incarnation at four. I don't know um, where else Echo might go. Um, I, I'm... I've, I've stopped saying that I'm not going to pick up characters again. Cause I mean, I didn't think I'd pick up the characters after the break and I picked them all up and I put them in other books. So I might bring mm-hmm. her up again. Um, yeah. But for now, I think I need to, like, I feel like her story has kind of come to this nice circle. I wanted to make four, therefore what I wanted to accomplish is there. So yeah. for now it's done. So, I, so there's two, two more things I want, I'm curious about. Because I think there's more, there's a bit more to this series than just the history piece. And I feel like part of it is um, Echo herself. And like, it, it's almost a story of cultural reconnection mm-hmm. um, through her, through her experience. And I, I, I loved her arc. Cause I think there is like an arc to her character. She's not just like a, a she's not just like a tool through which to view history. She has like agency in her story um, and growth, which I felt was like really cool to see that across the four, the four graphic novels. Can you talk to us a little bit about like Echo herself and like her, her arc from like the beginning to like the, the end of the book? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm really glad you saw that. Cause yeah, um, I really did try to make her this flesh and blood. Um, the whole, like, cause she is that literal contemporaries contemporary connection to the past you know like we're not dislodged from the past like the past keeps going in us so when echo started when the book started she had was separated from her mom and she was going to a new school and she felt really isolated and she didn't know anybody um and then part of her journey was not only like learning about her cultural identity um through time travel lucky girl um but also like she kind of develops this sense of community you know, like the first book, um, we we literally did a whole Wizard of Oz color scheme because whenever she was in contemporary times, the colors were very dull and muted. And then when she went back in time, there was these huge landscapes and the colors were bright and everybody was happy. Like she, um, her first time travel was to a bison hunt, which is when, you know, hundreds of families would get together for the annual bison hunt and would travel together for months um, following the bison. And it was this amazing communal experience right so she was this isolated girl in the present who gets to come like go back in time and be with this huge community of families um, that were her families that were connected to her and they just immediately accepted her and and took her under wing 
Um, so that's kind of what she goes through to her time. She feels more supported. She feels more loved. She feels more connected to people. And that reflects in her present reality as she makes friends, as she grows more comfortable in her home, as her mother gets well and is able to join her. Um, yeah, I just really wanted her to go through that rough patch, not only relying on herself, but also relying on the people around her. So it really is about kind of that finding that sense of identity and feeling, feeling strength from it, you know, feeling yeah. your ancestors running through you kind of thing. Yeah, which gives, and you mentioned that in, in, in Blood Memory too, near the, I think in the last, last issue, which I think was really beautiful. And, uh, and you, you do feel, you do see the confidence that grows inside of her, the more, and my dad used to say, you know, the more we remember from the past, the more we understand our identities today. And I, I felt that in, in echo. I, and I really like that. I really like that. There was like a, another level to that story that you were, was really beautifully done. Um, and so, the, and thank you for noticing that I noticed that. I took that out. <laughs> thank um, you for noticing. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the last thing I was noticing too, is that you, you, there, you, you had a concerted effort to um, you thought you were thinking a lot about representation in the in the series too, and I noticed that as well. Um, mm. And and so it wasn't just like having Echo the Métis character. You had um, you know you had a representation of disabled characters. Um, you had representation of two spirited characters. Um, and was that something also too that like was obviously it was it was uh, deliberate. Um, but can you maybe just talk about like the importance of representation in, in I guess, your series, but also generally in, in literature. Um, <laughs> that just felt like a really big question all the time. It, it is a big in question. Generally, <laughs> in, in literature for all time, for all people right now. For what um, we're trying to do, I mean, like for as Indigenous <laughs> writers, I think we, we think we think a lot about representation um, and uh, inherently our, our, I think our books are, are books of representation um, mm -hmm. and how, but, but you, 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 what I noticed in Echo is that there is a, you, there's a little, a bit of a step further in, in some of the periphery characters or secondary characters in, in the contemporary story. Yeah, I think that, I mean, as I was kind of exploring this cultural identity thing. I was thinking of her as a, she's about 13 when, when the story starts. And I think she's still about 13 when the story ends because um, she goes through junior high. So she's at most 15. But at, at that time, not only are people, are young people looking for their cultural identity, they're really looking at their gender identity and their, and their um, sexual identity and all of these things kind of identity is just finding who out who you are is the job of young people. And I think there's a whole bunch of different levels to that. Um, so I did want to explore uh, what it means to not to be a differently abled body. I, you know, if only in adjacent characters, because so many of those stories are not mine to tell, but I think we can still, they're not my stories to tell, but they can still have a place in this story. And, and something that Echo is considering as she's learning her own identity, her, her best friend Micah through the story um, is transitioning. Um, so she, um, uh, Micah goes through this gradual, um, this gradual, um, 
transition um, is very male presenting at the beginning and very female. Which we see, yeah, we see that yeah. growth, yeah. 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 And then she has a non-binary teacher, Mex uh, Francoise, who is representative of all of those teachers. And there are several teachers who, who are non-binary and go um, have the pre, what is that, a prefix of Mex? Is that what mm -hmm. it's called, a prefix? I think so, um, yeah. And I just think they are, again, it's that representation, it's seeing those people, it's, I think it makes such a difference to normalize what mm -hmm. has been marginalized um, and just bring it. And we're not even like, it's not my story to tell. We don't have to talk about it. We have um, in any great length, because I think so many people do that so much better. Um, but they can be in this story because they are the people in Echo's life. And, and for Echo's life in a contemporary environment to reflect a what a contemporary environment is, then there is all that diversity and there is all different kinds of people because that's what life is. Yeah, <laughs> and, and we live in a diverse community and we live yeah. in a diverse country. And I, I love that you did that. I, and that's why, like for me, part of what I loved about this series is not just like the history, which I've really come to love, even though when I was a kid, I hated history. <laughs> like I, I love the history, but I also I, I also found myself equally captivated by the contemporary stories and what, what you were doing um, with both and how they, you know, and how they kind of uh, really complemented each other um, to tell like a really fulsome, like complete um, story throughout the four four books. So um, yeah, great. It was just a great job. Yeah. And so just for, for everyone who knows, like the, the Girl Called Echo is a four book series. Um, the fourth book has just came came out and it is, um, I just saw today that is in the top 10 bestseller for Canadian kids books in Canada right now. Just so slightly under bearing grounds and whatever. And the under, a couple, under a couple of my books, whatever. It's not, it's not a competition. I'm just ahead of you. Um, Both series ahead of you. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> listen, listen though, like all the indigenous excellence on that bestseller list is pretty cool to see. Yeah. Well, Je I just, and I just looked at it today because Jesse Thistle is still on the nonfiction yeah, Jesse list. Jesse and Joshua. Joshua. Eden has two books out there. Two of Eden. her books are on the top. Yeah. Billy Ray, I um, think is on there. Uh, I believe uh, a, a history of my brief body. I think. I think so. I don't, I don't. Yeah. Sheree, um, you. Um, I, I'm on there. Tasha, Tasha Spillett's picture book. Tasha Spillett's on, on there. I mean, it's a beautiful pretty, picture book. We're living in an exciting time. For it's a pretty exciting. Split. I would also like to add that Joshua, Tasha, me, and you are all from Winnipeg. We are. Winnipeg, you know, I think Winnipeg is an underrated um, <laughs> underrated place that has produced some really good literature, not just with us, but like I think um, general. just generally. Yeah. yeah, I think it's yeah. I think it's an underrated place. So um, and definitely you're one of the what well, you're one of the um, the shining stars of the literary uh, community here. And <laughs> well, thank you. I'm yeah. And it was bright. I would also like to say that I think the reason our literature is so good here is because we have these really long winters with nothing to do, which leads right. us back to where we started about the weather and why it's so important. Oh, and you that's see what I did there. See, yes, and yeah. that's why you're a good storyteller. That's what I'm talking about. Making the loops, making the loops. Well done. So listen, Thanks. thank you for coming and 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 joining us here for this podcast. And thanks to the Ottawa Writers Festival for um, for showcasing 
um, someone who like, you're not only a good friend of mine, but I also like really admire and look up to you as a writer. And um, I love your work. And uh, thank you for, uh, for being here. Well, thank you for um, being better than Oprah. Come on, let's face it. You know, she's, she's totally I'm a pretty you know. good podcast interviewer hey i just won an award for podcasting exactly you you are like (laughs) podcast king podcasting all over the place they should give you a spotify deal that's oh you should totally Spotify. if you're listening spotify listen we've just shouted it out shout out robert maybe don't listen to this but spotify (laughs) do listen to it okay spotify listen to everything yeah and you know if they need a reference just call me you know and and buy katharina's literature Thank you very nice. much. And then buy David's literature. But be, buy Katharina's <laughs> first, at least for this week after you've heard this podcast, and then then buy either one you want, whatever yeah, but, whatever floats your boat. Or you know what? Go to the library because libraries need our support, and we still get yep. money from libraries. That's true, and that's great yeah. that you're right. Yes, good point. <laughs> Thanks, Thank Katharina. You. Thank you. Bye bye. That was David A. Robertson in conversation with Katerina Vermette on her latest graphic novel, Road Allowance Era. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. As always, I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our spring season runs through to the end of the month, and it's all available online at writersfestival.org, so all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>